Well, my name's Sean Slate. I'm the pastor of Redeemer Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, I've been there for about one year. Uh, and before that, I was the campus minister at the University of Virginia for about 10 years. And so what's kind of really crazy is this is one year to the date uh, that I left Charlottesville, Virginia. And so for UVA students to be here, it's a real treat for me to see them again. It's good to reconnect with old friends. It's a little bit of emotional for me. I wasn't quite prepared for it, so it's good to see you all. Uh, I do want to say that I love uh, RUF. I mean, the invitation by your campus ministers to come and be with you this weekend really is an honor and one which many of you won't fully be able to understand. Uh, I became a Christian through RUF at Clemson University, uh, and um, I guess 20-something years ago, 22 years ago, 23 years ago at uh, Clemson. And then some of your campus ministers are some of my really, really good friends. And they are men who I totally respect and think the world of. Stephen Speaks and I have known each other for about 19 years. We shared office space together at Clemson. And we would play disc golf on all of our breaks around uh, Clemson Prez uh, back when I used to work there. Sammy Rhodes and I have shared a bed together multiple times. Uh, Lewis, Lewis Lovett was my son's campus pastor, uh, youth, uh, youth pastor. Uh, John Bourgeois has the best smile that I've ever seen. <laughs> Handsome John. Uh, Sid Druin's one of the smartest individuals I've had conversations with. Chris Warren has cool tats. I think he's. Pretty nice. You know, Robert Cunningham now has the best job uh, in the world. And so, you know, uh, it's just really great uh, to be reunited with you all this week. And so, thanks for having me. What I want to do this weekend is I want us to think a little bit about the sufficiency of Christ. And I don't know how that's going to strike you, like the sufficiency of Christ. I don't know if that's like the Snoopy wah, 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 or if that's like, oh, that's interesting. Here's why I want to talk about it. Uh, There are some of you who are not Christians, and you have been courageous enough to come to this thing, this weird thing called a Christian retreat, and it's in a wizarding village up in North Carolina called Tuxedo. And uh, what I really hope for you is that at some point this weekend, as you're thinking about this Jesus person, that you will see something lovely and beautiful, and he will meet you in all the ways that you feel insufficient. There are some of you who are Christians, and you have come up here, and I think that this is an important topic for us, because the fact of the matter is that Jesus is everything, or he is nothing. Jesus is everything, or he is nothing, and that is the claim of Christianity. And it is the fundamental assumption of this ministry that we call RUF. And yet one of the constant struggles in all of our lives uh, as human beings is that we feel so insufficient for life. Right? I mean, if y'all are anything like me, you constantly feel like you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough, that you're not moral enough, you're not passionate enough, you're not driven enough, you're not sold out enough, you don't read your Bible enough, you don't pray enough, you don't go to church enough, you're not nice enough, you're just not enough. And you feel insufficient for the task at hand. And so oftentimes, in the midst of all of that insufficiency, we begin uh, to get frustrated with Christianity. Right? You get frustrated with it. I mean, you've been a Christian for three years, four years, five years, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And as you look at your life, you still feel that you're not enough. And the temptation for us in those moments is to sort of just give up on Christianity. 
Not because Jesus isn't amazing or wonderful. It has nothing to do with Him. But because you don't feel like you're enough. You don't feel like you have arrived. And it's in those very moments that Christianity, and Jesus in particular, is inviting you to lift your eyes from your own insufficiencies that you might see and rest in the sufficiency of Jesus. Because what Jesus wants you to see about himself is that he is sufficient for your entire life. And so this weekend, I want to think about the sufficiency of Jesus. And we have four times together, all right? And so I want to do four different talks, if that's okay. I won't repeat one this week. Um, This is my favorite. We're going to do it three times. Um, So uh, we're going to talk about the sufficiency of Jesus. And so tonight, what I want to talk about is the sufficiency of his story. In the morning, we'll talk about the sufficiency of resting. Uh, Then we'll talk about the sufficiency of union. And then we'll talk about the sufficiency of new life, all right? The sufficiency of the story, the sufficiency of union, the sufficiency of resting, and the sufficiency of new life. So let's begin. The sufficiency of the story, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8. Get comfortable, all right? Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You say thanks be to God. Fantastic. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, that you love us. We're thankful that you're a God who's not hidden, nor a God who is silent, but you are a God who delights to make himself known, and you do that. Uh, You do that in your word, by your Holy Spirit, and ultimately you do that in the person and work of Jesus. And so it's our prayer that tonight we would see lovely things about you and this your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. But you know, it seems to me that stories are actually incredibly powerful because a story captures not just your imagination, right? But a story begins to capture your heart. And when a story captures your heart, it begins to capture all of your emotions and it captures all of your desires. And when your emotions and when your desires are captured, then your life begins to change, right? Stories are not merely amusement, They are not merely entertainment. The stories that we give our lives to are actually mirrors and maps. And what I mean by that as a story being a mirror and a map, what that means is that the story is reflecting back to us what is true about our lives. And it is reflecting where we ought to be. It tells us who we are and where we are. But they also serve not just as mirrors, they serve as these maps telling you who you ought to be and where you ought to be going, right? Does this make sense? There's a great commercial that kind of exemplifies this. It's the new Amazon Fire commercial. You might have seen it. There's this guy and this girl, and they're like on a sofa, and they've got a blanket on them, and they're like watching television, and they're thrumming through the channels, and there's this deep, fancy voice that comes on, and it says... You spend more time looking for a show than watching one, and she's over it. And you're in a show hole. 
Will you drift apart? Will she go back to her TVX? No, you've got Amazon Fire TV. Its brain knows your TV heart. Yes, so long, show hole. Right, all right, this is a great commercial, right? And what I love about this commercial is that it uses the word show hole, right? I mean, that's amazing. Um, well, the other part about this commercial that I love is that it's getting at what all of us feel, uh, you know, after binging on Stranger Things, you know? Like, all of our young friends have sort of disappeared and they're gone, and we need new friends, right? And so we set out in search of this new story, not because stories are escapes from reality, but because stories actually give us new ways to enter into reality. I mean, just think about the stories that we love. If you think about Frank Underwood and the House of Cards, right, as you watch it, it's not just an interesting story about politics, it's actually beginning to shape the way we all understand this election cycle, right? As you think about Game of Thrones, if you've watched Game of Thrones, you shouldn't, uh, but uh, it offers you a vision of power and sexuality. If you were a fan of the, of the show The Good Wife, uh, what it is, it's a show showing you a vision of how women can and struggle through the balancing of their marriage, of their children, and of their career. If you watch The Wire, it invites you in to see the criminal justice system. If you've ever entered into the world of Harry Potter, the greatest story ever, right? Uh, that story shapes the way you understand university, the way you understand school, the way you understand friendships, the way that you understand the battle between good and evil. And one of the things that's really amazing about Harry Potter is that psychologists have actually begun to, to like study children who love these books, who are Harry Potter fans. And one of the things that they found is that fans of Harry Potter are actually more compassionate and gracious and generous towards the outsider than those who aren't Potter fans. Why is that? Because stories are powerful. All the outsiders in the book of Harry Potter, right, they show grace and compassion and they fight for one another and they love one another. Stories shape us and they're powerful. And what I find really amazing about the show whole phenomenon that we all find ourselves in is that we move from story to story seeking new understanding and seeking new ways of understanding the world and not just this idea of I need a new uh, mode of entertainment. But we look to all these stories that begin to shape us and we move from one story to the next. And that's what was happening uh, in Colossae. Uh, the people in Colossae, right, this book, that, this letter that we just read is written to a, a group of people in Colossae. And they had fallen into a show hole, right? They had binged on the gospel. What, what had happened is there's this man, and his name was Epaphras. And Epaphras had gone to, probably had gone to Rome, and he'd come in contact with this guy named Paul. Paul is also known as the Apostle Paul. He wrote this letter. And he came in contact with him, and he told him the story of Jesus. And Epaphras thought, that's a great story. And so Epaphras then went back to Colossae, and he told all of his friends and all of his relatives, he told the city about this guy named Jesus, and they loved it, and they binged on it, and they plant this church there in Colossae. And as they like binge on the stories, they tell it over and over again, there are these new storytellers who come to town, these false teachers. 
And they come into the town and they say, oh, like, you've heard the story of Jesus. That's a great story. Well, let me tell you a spinoff of Jesus. Let me tell you a spinoff of that story. Because there is a deeper, there is a fuller sense of knowledge. There are these deeper philosophies that you need to know if you're going to grow up and if you're going to succeed in this world. And so what happened was the Colossians then snuggled up on the sofa and they started listening to these other stories. And they began to be deceived by them. And as they gave themselves to these other stories, they became discontent with Jesus. And it seems to me that we're a lot like the Colossians. We're not all that different because we're surrounded by hundreds and thousands of stories. And at times, we too, like the Colossians, fall into the show hole looking for something new, looking for something different, maybe something more exciting, maybe something funnier, maybe something a little edgier, something lighter, something deeper, something more emotional, something Ryan Gosling, hey girl, I know you want to see my movie, you know, maybe a Terrence Malick uh, piece on the meaning of the universe. Uh, And then you go to church, right? And as you sit in church, or you go to RUF, or you sit in your small group Bible studies, you begin to think, this is the story. This is it. And you sit around and you talk about it for an hour, and like you go and you meet with your campus minister, and you talk about the story, and you're like, yes, this is it. And then you leave, right? And then you go to the Sigma Chi house, and you go frat out, right? And you have your hair held for the weekend, you know? And you're like, no, this is life. Right? This party, this is what life is actually all about. And then you go surf the internet looking for clothing at J. Crew, you know, and you find that perfect madras shirt and short combo that you just can't live without. You think, man, if I could just have that and some black socks and sandals, I would be living. I would be somebody. Right? And then, uh, and then you go to class, you start reading the academic journals, and you see all these new kind of discoveries and these new theories. And you think, man, if I was just smart like that, then I would have life, and then I would be somebody. Most of you started school back, right, about four or five weeks ago, something like that. And as you meet up with all your friends, and you hear about their summer internships, and as you heard about, like, their summer trips abroad, and you hear these stories, and you're thinking, like, I'm not sufficient for life. They're the ones who are really living. And as you look at your friends at school, they're those cool kids who are winning at university and you feel like you're not. You feel totally insufficient for what's ahead of you. Right? And then you go on a run. Right? It's trying to get off the stretch. You go for a run around the university and around most of our universities. That's where all the beautiful houses are. All the sexy neighborhoods you know, around the lake at Davidson and the sexy neighborhoods on Rugby Avenue or the sexy avenue, you know, sexy houses behind the SO Club. Uh, and then the, not the whorehouses. I'm not talking about the whorehouses around the universe. I'm talking about like the cool neighborhoods, right, where the big houses. And you think, man, is everybody like exchanging like uh, sexy house addresses with each other? That's sexy cool neighborhoods, right? And you're thinking, like, if I could just live in one of these places, then I would be somebody. I don't know if I can get y'all back with me, but uh, these stories, like, they grab your imagination, right? They grab your heart, and they begin to shape you. And that's why a guy named Carl Jung famously once said that the most important question anyone can ask is, what myth am I living? The most important question anyone can ask is, what myth am I living? 
What myth? Right? What story is shaping you? And that's why Paul is writing to his friends. He's saying, look, these other stories have come in and they are attractive to you. And they are capturing your hearts. But as they capture your heart, what they are doing is that they are enslaving you. And so he is inviting his friends to once again rest in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who gives us true freedom. And so tonight, what I want us to think about is I want us to think about these stories. I want us to think about these stories that enslave us. And then I want us to think about the true story, all right? The stories that enslave us, it's going to take up most of our time. And then we'll talk about the true story of Jesus, which will be filled out over the next few days. First, the stories that enslave us. I want you to remember uh, that Paul's great concern for his friends at Colossae is that they are forgetting the story of Jesus, And as they forget the story of Jesus, what they're doing is they are turning to these other myths, these other stories. They're turning to things like power and mystery and knowledge and excitement and morality. They're even turning to the spiritual world. And Paul is writing to warn them. He is saying, look, you're turning to all these stories, but you already have the story. You're turning to all these other things to try to make sense of your world, but you already have everything that you need. These stories, they are coming and they are trying to sell you what you already have. Do not waste your time. So he goes on in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, not according to Christ. And so what Paul is saying to them is he's saying, look, I beg with you. Please continue to learn the story of Jesus. Do not be taken captive Right? The language of being taken captive is that of being enslaved or that of being taken as booty, right? Pirates of the Caribbean style. Do not be enslaved. Do not, do not be taken captive as booty right? by philosophy and empty deceit. And what seems to be happening here is that the false teachers were claiming that there is this deeper, truer, more definitive way of engaging the world and understanding the world apart from Jesus. And so the Colossians, as they're thinking about this philosophy, they're not merely thinking about schools of thought like Aristotle, like, like as we talk about Aristotle and as we talk about Socrates. Like the philosophies for the Colossians, the philosophies of the ancient world, weren't just schools of thought taught by some white guy with a beard and spectacle horn rim glasses, right? Or a uh, half moon glass. I'm thinking of Dumbledore is what I'm thinking about. <laughs> you know, right? Uh, philosophies in the ancient world were actually ways of living. They were filled with meaning and ritual and liturgy and community. They weren't merely ways of, uh, ways of thought. Now, we're not exactly sure what the exact philosophy was, but what we do know is verse 8. That it was a way of living in the world that was not rooted and established in the story of Jesus. And therefore, uh, Paul goes on to say that these stories are, verse 8, empty and deceitful. What he's saying is this. He's saying the stories that we are all giving our hearts to are facades of reality. If you've ever been to Epcot Center, right, you go to Epcot and you go to Paris and you walk around Paris and you're like, 
strolling the Champs-Élysées. You're sitting in the cafe, sipping your cafe LA, maybe a cappuccino. I don't know, that's Italian maybe. But you're having your coffee, and you're eating your pastries, and you're getting a baguette, right? And as you have all these things, you're thinking, oh, Paris is beautiful this time of year. <laughs> you're in Florida, right? The whole thing's a lie. You've been deceived, right? That's, that's what Paul is saying. Or you can think about it more like the Arrested Development House, right? The big mansion up on the hill. It looks beautiful and powerful and strong and solid. But if you just get up close, it's a hollow shell, right? The TV's fake. You know, the, the rails on the stairs aren't really, they're glued on. You know, people are living up in the attic. The pipes aren't connected. And all your, like, urine and feces drip down underneath the house. And it just destroys the foundation. You saw that episode, right? It's a good episode. It's one of my favorite. Right? And what, what you begin to see is that the Arrested Development House is really just this hollow shell that is meant to deceive potential buyers. And Paul is saying that any story that is not rooted and established in Jesus is a lie. It's a facade. And then notice the contrast that he makes in verse 8. The philosophy is according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And so what Paul's saying here is that these stories that we give ourselves to are these stories that are just made up by human beings. They're passed down. They might be old, right? They might be passed down from generation to generation. They might have a, a semblance of wisdom to them, like Aesop's fables. They might be incredibly interesting, like the Nordic uh, Bifrost myths, right? But they are still of human tradition, not from God. And then he goes on to talk about these elemental spirits, most likely talking about the spiritual world and the power of the spiritual world. Right? We don't know the specifics of it, but he might be thinking about things like the Roman pantheon of gods. He might be thinking about the occult or astrology. He might be thinking about the Jews who were living under the law rather than under Jesus. But whatever the case is, whatever philosophy is deceiving them, what Paul is saying is that when you try to understand the world apart from God, you have been deceived. Right? Biblical scholars don't agree on all the details, but they are all agreeing on this. The best story that humanity can come up with for understanding this world apart from Jesus is empty, it is deceitful, and it is enslaving. And so the question for us is, what are the stories that we are enslaved to? What are the stories that you constantly study and give your heart to? You are what you wear. You're Patagonia, right? You got to have Patagonia because you got to walk all the way to class, right? I mean, you need your hunter boots, right? You are what you wear. And, uh, and if you wear the wrong thing, then you are wrong. You felt this at prom. You felt this at every Cayo formal you've ever gone to. Right? You have felt this at every wedding you've ever attended. You're enslaved to having to look right and dress right. Others of us, we, are, uh, we don't really care about how we dress. Uh, others of us care about what we do. You are what you do. You got to play the right sport. You got to have the right job. You got to have the right hobby. You got to have the right body. Some of us are succeeding. Uh, you got to vote the right way, um, or you're nothing. And those of us who are children of alcoholics 
and addicts. This is us. We are what we do because our entire life is about doing the right thing so that someone does not freak out and so that we can keep peace at all costs. You are what you do. Others of us are what we think. We're socialists. We're communists. We're republicans. We're liberals. We're physicists. We're comm school majors. We're smart. We're dumb. We can read. We can't read. We are what we think, right? You are your school. Uh, some of you are smart, hardworking elites from Davidson, right? That's what y'all are. You're smart, you work hard, and you're elite. Uh, others of you are football-loving engineers uh, who love orange. Uh, you're from Clemson. Others of you, uh, all, your chief goal in life is to move to Charleston, South Carolina. You go to USC. Uh, others of you are uh, outdoor-loving hunters uh, from Western Carolina. Uh, others of you are preppy, civic-minded wahoos. Uh, but the point is that every store, like, like Stephen Speaks and I were like out, out, we were out back watching the band, and I said, where's the band from? He goes, where do you think they're from? And I was like, Western Carolina? He's <laughs> like, that's where they're from. <laughs> so like, you are, you are what you wear, and uh, you are what you do, and you are your school. Because every school has a story that they are telling, and you are becoming. They tell you how to dress. They tell you uh, what you're supposed to be interested in. They tell you how you're supposed to spend your summers. You are an American, and we've bought into the story of American exceptionalism. In order to live the American dream, you know that uh, what is required to live the American dream, free land and free labor. And we built an entire country on injustice, stealing land and abusing people. And we're Americans who are great, and let's keep it great. See, these stories, they shape us and they enslave us to them and they are deceitful to us. And it's by these stories that we not only judge ourselves, but we judge one another. And we're so anxious that we make the right decision. I mean, you even have to make the right decision about what dessert. I mean, you can't even order. Because you've got to do it right. You are what you do, you are what you think, you are your school, you're your major. But what I want you to hear from the Bible is that the gospel is telling you that there is a much better story. There's a story that is not about you getting everything right. There's a story about a God who enters into our story and dwells with us in the person and work of Jesus. And that story is a much better story than your story. Notice what Paul says in verse 6 and 7. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so what Paul is saying to his friends, he's saying, please do not forget the true story. Please do not forget that Jesus is everything. And I love the way he puts it. He says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk. What he's saying is, as you began, so continue. 
If you're a Christian, I want you to think about the way you began with Jesus. How did you begin with him? For many of us, it was balled up on the living room floor in the fetal position, crying out for mercy. For me, it was 1993 at 3 a.m. in Lightsey Bridge, apartment with Anthony Bradley after a night of foolishness covered in shame, asking for forgiveness. For others of us, it's looking through a telescope at the vastness and the beauty of the universe. For others of you, it was entering into a community that loved you and didn't talk about itself, but talked most significantly about Jesus. And they cared about you. Whatever the details, every Christian begins with Jesus being everything to them. We began, verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. We were just thankful for God's love. We were just thankful for His mercy. We were thankful for His power and for His presence. We were thankful for His goodness and His grace. We were thankful because in our weakest moments, He had us. We were thankful because God loved us when nobody else did. We are thankful because he heard our cries when others ignored us. We are thankful because when we were nothing, we were everything to him. But the problem for us is that over time, we want to replace Jesus. We want to become the main character of our story once again. And we want to be big, and we want to be strong, and we want to be powerful. And once we began as thankful, just wanting to be near him, just wanting to hear his story, just wanting to know of his love, just wanting to talk of him, somehow, over time, we wanted to become that main character. We wanted to make our own plans. We wanted to be something more important. We wanted to be more significant. We wanted to be more sufficient. We wanted to actually come to a place in our life where we no longer needed to cry out to him. In the beginning, all we wanted was to cry out to him. And then we come to the place where we really want to come to a place in our life when we don't need Jesus anymore. And Paul says in verse 6, As you received him, so walk in him. As you received him, so walk in him. Continue walking in him. Remember, I mean, when you first met him, He was lovely. And he still is. Remember when you first met him, he was merciful and kind. And he still is. The problem for many of us in growing as Christians is not Jesus. The problem is us. Because we want to be Christians without needing him. And that is impossible. By definition, Jesus is everything, or he is nothing. Jesus is the main character of the story, or he's not in the story. And that's why Paul is saying, walk in him, rooted in him, built up in him. The entire Christian life is in him. (coughs) There's this old guy named Nietzsche, and he once said... uh, That the essential thing in heaven and on earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. 
essential thing is that there would be a long obedience in the same direction. What Nietzsche's doing is he is borrowing from the wisdom of Paul. Because the Christian life is a long walk in the direction of Jesus. And what that means is that all the plot lines of your life are to be brought together in him. And they're to find their meaning in him. They're to find their fulfillment in him. Such that your story might become beautiful and abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, you've been so kind to us to give us a better story than ourselves. And Father, we ask that you would help us to see more lovely things about you and about your kindness. And we pray that you would give us great courage and energy to walk in you, towards you, towards the goodness of your story. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.